Let us pray. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who has chosen to speak to us out of the silence of eternity, that when you speak, speak, things happen. When you spoke and there was nothing, there was something. And Lord, we, we so desperately need a word from you. So we pray that you would clear out from our hearts and minds all the distractions and cobwebs and the cares and concerns of our lives in this past week and give us the single-minded devotion of your servant Mary to sit at your feet and to hear what you have to say. Speak your word, Lord, as only you can, in power and in glory and with great clarity. And help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we allow our Lord to teach us to pray? Shall we allow our Lord to teach us to pray? We come this morning in our series, Our Story, right? Because it's our story. I just played a trick on you to see if you're awake. Is anybody awake? <laughs> right? See, you didn't even hesitate because we're Americans, so it's always about us, right? There's us magazines at the supermarket checkout, right? So it's our story, right? No, his story. <laughs> and we're in the most famous prayer by the most famous person, and you already know the text, so I'm in great trouble, but I'm going to give it a try. Anyway, what I want to do is look at three aspects of prayer and really think hard about how we go about learning to pray. And as I do and as we begin, let me quote to you my professor, J.I. Packer, who said once about North American Christianity, it was 3,000 miles wide and half an inch deep. And there are lots of reasons for that. But one of the chief reasons, brothers and sisters, that we have to own as American Christians is most of us have not yet learned how to pray. If you look at the global church and ask the question, where are the prayers? The answer is not in North America, and especially not in America. It's a weak area. It's a place where we need help, and we need conversation, and we need honesty, and we need self-examination. Are you all with me? Let, me? let me quickly define it, and then let's look at it. It's very important that I spend a moment and define it, because prayer is a huge topic but it's very simple if you think about it the right way. And the simplest answer to the question, what is prayer, is this. It's a conversation. You, you've got to understand this. The dictionary definition of a conversation is this. A talk, especially an informal one between two or more people, in which news and ideas are exchanged. So my wife and I have been married 34 years, going on 35 and uh, our kids are out of the house. So if you were to be dropped in on our dinner table conversation at the end of the day, and you heard the way that we talk to one another and the way that we talk to one another and the, the subjects that we chose, that's what a conversation actually looks like, right? We don't talk about the weather, but we also, we have great disappointments and we have great joys and we have ordinary things, but, but there's, a, there's a level of eye contact and there's a level of honesty, and there's a level of exchange in both directions that makes it a real conversation. You know what it looks like when you see a movie, and you see a scene, and there's a conversation. You say, that wasn't really a conversation. You know what a conversation is. It's got two directions. It's got two parts. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, says it magnificently, I think. As a gift of the Spirit, listen to this, prayer becomes the continuation of a conversation that God has already started. 
It's absolutely right. It's absolutely brilliant. If you don't understand that the conversation with God has already started and that God's brought you to the place where you're talking to him and he's brought you to a new day and he's giving you the gift of life and he's giving you the gift of new life, you don't understand how prayer works. It's a two-way thing, all right? We all together, it's a conversation. All right, now, how shall we go about it? We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer and we're going to think about the components of prayer for just a second. It's a magnificent topic. It's a giant topic, so I've got to break it down, right? How do you eat an elephant? Short answer, one bite at a time, all right? So three aspects of prayer to provoke your thoughts. First of all, what does the Lord's Prayer teach us about prayer? First of all, it is intimate. Every one of my three points begins with the letter I. That's not a gimmick. It's actually so that you will remember it just as a little tip as a preacher. If I were to come find you on Thursday afternoon and I asked you what the sermon was about, I'm actually preaching it in such a way that I hope you'll be able to answer the question. And one of the ways that you learn what somebody says is you follow their outline. So I've got three points and they all start with the same letter. All right, you all with me? So I for intimate. It's intimate. It's, it's deeply personal. It's, it's like the bedroom conversation of a married couple or it's like the dinner conversation at the end of the day of a married couple. If you look at this prayer, there are five verses, 9 through 13. If you look at those verses carefully, think about this for a second. There's actually 11 pronouns in those five verses. Thy, us, our, we, your. 11 of them. Why? Because it's the family language. It's the intimate language. In other words, what the Lord's Prayer teaches us about prayer, first and foremost, is this. God wants you as you really are. Not who you're purporting to be, not the mass that you're putting on, not who your family wants you to be, who your parents want you to be, who your coworkers want you to be, but who you really are at that moment. That is to say, where you live and move and have your being. That's what God wants. He wants you. Newsflash. God actually knows us better then we know ourselves. So it's not a surprise to God, whatever we say. So what's a real prayer look like? Oh, something like this. Dear God, I really didn't get up on the right side of the bed this morning. I don't really feel like praying. Please help me. That's a real prayer. That's what God wants. Where do you learn about prayer most in the Bible? The Psalms. Look at the Psalms. Think about the Psalms. Think about the Psalms as the prayer book of Jesus, which is what they are. What do they teach us? Look at what the psalmist does. He says again and again whatever is going on and how he feels about it, and he puts it right in God's lap and says, Look, this is the situation. You're God. Let's handle this, please. You're supposed to handle this. (laughs) Right? So he says, Now look, the score is 52 to nothing. We've been through the first half. We're supposed to be your team. You're doing a lousy job. We're behind. Let's get it together. That's the way the prayer reads. And the point is, the psalmist, you don't ever get the sense when you read the psalms that that the psalmist is like, oh gosh, I'm being so honest. I'm giving God so much. I wonder if he can handle it. You just don't get that sense. It's the opposite situation. No matter what ball you choose to pitch to God in the psalms, it doesn't matter where you are. I think of a Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you so disquieted within me? He's practically preaching to himself, hope in God, for I will again praise him. Why are you, he's practically preaching to himself. What is he saying? He's saying, Lord, I'm so depressed. I'm so downcast. I need to be lifted up. That's where he is. Are you honest with your prayers? Do you really give God 
who you are absolutely, truly, and really every single day. Kids help. I collect... They really do. They're the, the kids pray great prayers. I've got a whole collection of them, and if I get way off on this this morning, we'll never stop because these are so hysterical. But just listen to a few kids' prayers because they pray honestly. Dear God, who did you make smarter, boys or girls? My sister and I both want to know. <laughs> Jimmy, age six. Dear God, please send a new baby for mommy. The new baby you sent last week cries too much. <laughs> Dear God... This is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. Those are real prayers. Kids tell the truth. Here's Tim Keller's friend, Jack Miller. Listen to this on prayer. Very, very good stuff, this. You can tell, he says, if a man or a woman is really on speaking terms with God. Keller writes this, I've had years to test out that thesis that Jack shared with me years ago. It's quite possible to become quite florid, theologically sound and earnest in your public prayers without cultivating a rich, private prayer life. Listen, you can't manufacture the unmistakable note of reality that comes from speaking not toward God, but with him. You can learn a ton about somebody by listening to them and the way that they pray. The unmistakable note of reality that only comes from speaking not toward God, but with Him. Intimacy. You all, right? you all with me? You don't need to hide. God wants you as you really are. Give Him who you are, where you are, honestly, what you're going through. He can handle it. He's up to the task. Everybody with me so far? First, intimate. Second, industrious. Terribly, terribly important. There's so many great teachings about prayer in this passage. One of the most profound is this. It's, it's actually the single most important thing about prayer. How do you learn to pray? Just think about it for a second. It's a really interesting question. There's so many books. There's so many classes. There's so many seminars. You know how you learn to pray? You pray. Don't miss that. In Luke's version of this passage, it goes this way. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus answers, this is pivotal. When you pray, pray, and then comes the Lord's Prayer. In other words, even more important than the Lord's Prayer is the fact that you need to pray it. It's like swimming. There comes that terrible moment when you're six or seven or whatever, and you've been taking the lessons and you've been held, you know, up in the small end of the pool. And the instructor says, okay, here we go. And it's, it's really rather terrifying. You know, we probably some of us can remember. But you, there does come a point when you have to be thrown into the deep end of the pool and fend for yourself. You're never going to learn to swim unless you actually swim all on your own. Even if you initially go glug, 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 and the instructor has to pull you back up. Prayer is exactly like that. It's like preaching, it's like a lot of life, it's like dating. You have to do it to learn how to do it. But there's more. Look at the way that the prayer unfolds. It is a daily task. Give us this day our daily bread. Pray then like this means that it is to be our industrious work 
our daily activity is to be as automatic for us as getting out of bed and making our bed, as eating meals, as taking a shower. It goes into the backdrop of the automatic tasks that we do so often and so automatically that we don't even think about it. In the book of Philippians, it says, pray unceasingly, pray without ceasing. And the word that's used in Greek is a word that means a hacking cough, and I'm going to date myself now. I grew up with those NyQuil commercials, right? But, but you know what a hacking cough is like. I mean, a really, a really horrible, jagging hacking cough. You can't get rid of the daggum thing, right? That's what the NyQuil commercial is all about, right? The husband's in bed, and he's driving his wife halfway nuts, and finally he gets up and takes a NyQuil because he can't stop coughing no matter what he... And, and the prayer is to be as unceasing as a person with a hacking cough. Or think about Jesus' parable that you already know, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. Do you remember why Jesus tells the parable? Let me remind you. He told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It is to be our daily task. It is industrious. It is work. There are a lot of books on prayer, but in my view, the finest ever, by a long margin, is by O. Halsby. That's H-A-L-L-E-S-B-Y. It's still in print. It's not very long. It's a classic. He's a Norwegian Christian. He has a magnificent book on prayer. It's so practical. It's so deep. It's so rich. And my favorite chapter in the book is called Prayer as Work this point exactly and my favorite illustration in that my favorite chapter goes like this listen this is brilliant stuff this is a man who spent his life thinking about how prayer actually functions and has written an uncomparably great book about prayer he's worth listening to listen to this the work of the spirit he says can be compared to mining the spirit's work is to blast to pieces the sinner's hardness of heart and his frivolous opposition to God. The period of awakening can be likened to the other times when the blasts are fired. The time between awakenings corresponds, on the other hand, to the time when deep holes are being bored with great effort into the hard rock. Now listen. To bore these holes is hard and difficult and a task which tries one's patience. To light the fuse and to fire the shot is not only easy, but it's interesting work. You get to see results from such work. It creates interest, too. Shots resound, and pieces fly in every direction. But it takes trained workmen to do the boring. Anybody can light a fuse. The Spirit calls us to do the quiet, difficult, trying work of boring wholly explosive materials into the souls of people by daily and unceasing prayer. This is the real preparatory work for the next awakening. The reason why there's such a long period of time between awakenings is simply that the Spirit cannot find believers who are willing to do the heavy part of mining work. Everybody desires awakenings, but we prefer to let others do the boring into the hard rock. Boom. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. In my devotional readings this week, I had Eliezer, the servant of um, <coughs> Abraham, going out to find a wife for, for Isaac. And if you remember the story, he's sent 
to another area, to another people under instruction, and he just comes to this well, and he says this prayer, and there's this woman, and it, it turns out that she's just there at that particular point of the day, and the great early church father Origen says in his commentary, it's great stuff, this, he says, you need to realize something about this scene. You need to realize Rebecca was at that well every single day, every day. But it was on that day that this happened. But she wouldn't have had that day unless she went to the well every day. And Origen says, it's just like that with God. You go to the well every day. There's a lot of apparently ordinary days. But you go every day and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, in whatever strange circumstance, you'll realize that when you've been doing that boring work that Hollisby's talking about, something explosive can happen. It really can and it really will. Are you all with me? It's got to be there every single day. I had no idea as a young Christian how blessed I was because I was absolutely drilled with the idea that I had to have a quiet time, no matter what. And I can still remember the part of the college library where I went every single day and sat. And uh, what I want to know from you is this, brothers and sisters. I want to know that somewhere in your house, somewhere in your work, at some point this week, every single day, at the same time, if I were to be dropped into your life, I could find you trying to pray. That's what the Lord wants. Nothing is more important than that. First, intimate. Second, industrious. Third, not done, intrepid. I told you they all began with I. It's resolute. It's bold. It's audacious. I read a sermon from Spurgeon this week from 1884. He helped me greatly on this point. It's such a magnificent prayer and it's so well known. You tend to miss parts of it. And what Spurgeon points out is if you actually drop back and look at it, it's astonishingly bold. You need to think, he says, about what we're actually praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're actually praying that the way things are going up there, which is perfectly in line with the will of God, is now going to be the way things are going to be down here on earth, perfectly in line with the will of God. Here's Spurgeon in his own words. If the prayer of our text had not been dictated by the Lord himself, we might think it too bold. Can it ever be that earth, a mere drop in the bucket, should touch the great sea of life above and not be lost in it? Can it remain earth and yet be made to look like heaven? Will it not lose its individuality in the process? The earth is subject to vanity, dimmed with ignorance, defiled with sin, furrowed with sorrow. Can holiness possibly dwell in earth as in heaven? And yet, this is what we actually pray. And if you look at the prayers of the saints, if you look at the prayers in the Psalms, if you look at the prayers in the scriptures, they are all characterized by this. They pray to a great God and they dare to ask great things. Think of Acts 4. You already know this story, but let me just remind you of it. They haul the apostles before the tribunal and they basically say, look, what's all this nonsense you guys are messing around with? And it, and it says... They were very ordinary men, it says, but they, the, 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 the council was very provoked and very angry. But it says, even though they were ordinary men, that they could see that they, were with, they had been with Jesus. That's what it says. And the, the, the tribunal takes counsel, and they're utterly furious, and they say, you can do whatever you want, just don't preach in the name of Jesus. 
and they sent him out. You remember? Now what I want to remind you is what happened after that. This is still Acts 4. Now th- think about that. You're, you're, right, you're in front of somebody who can literally hand you over to your death. And they've just let you have it. And they've sent you out saying, don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they come back to the whole multitude of Christians gathered. They say what happened. And they all pray a corporate prayer. And I quote, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The earth's kings set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant David, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now... Listen to this concluding prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders will be performed. Can you believe that? They told them not to preach. They went back and prayed to preach even more boldly and for signs and wonders to accompany them when they did so. This is a real biblical prayer. So, three ingredients, it is intimate, it is industrious, and it is intrepid. You all with me? One story, then some questions. One of my all-time favorite stories about prayer from Scotland. I love it because it's so simple, it's so ordinary, but it actually ties together my points beautifully. Years ago, the Free Kirk of Scotland was holding a synod meeting. This is great. It's about a diocesan convention. Talk about dull. In the granite city city of Aberdeen, and worshipers were flocking from all the nearby towns to participate in the services. An aged man was wending his way through the city on foot when he was undertaken by a young theological student. The two walked on in company. Despite the difference in their ages, they had much in common, so they enjoyed chatting together as they went on to their intended goal. At noontime, they came to a grassy copse, and they sat down to eat lunch, which they had brought with him, first giving thanks to God for his gracious provision. Afterward, the aged pilgrim suggested to the theological student that they pray together before continuing their journey. The young theologian was a bit embarrassed, but he agreed, intimating that the elder man should pray first, which he did. Addressing God in all the simplicity, he poured out his heart in thanksgiving. Then he uttered three specific requests. He reminded the Lord that he was very hard of hearing, and if he did not get a seat well up in the front of the kirk, he might as well not even have come. So he asked that a seat be kept for him near enough to the pulpit so that he could get the benefit of the message. Secondly, he told the Lord that his shoes were so badly worn they were not fit for city streets, and he pleaded for a new pair of shoes, and he didn't have the money to purchase them. And finally, he prayed for a place to stay the night as he knew no one in Aberdeen and did not know where to look for accommodations. At which point, the young theological student's eyes were wide open, and he looked on the old man with mingled disgust and amazement, thinking the height of impertinence of this guy to burden the deity with such trivialities. When his turn came to pray, he prayed a beautiful, eloquent, carefully composed discourse, which truly amazed his older companion, who saw in it nothing 
indicating a making known of his needs to God the Father. Proceeding on their way, they reached the kirk just as people were crowding in. It was soon evident that when they got there, there was no longer any room even to stand. The student thought, aha, aha, now we shall see what shall come of this man's presumptuous prayers. He'll see that God can no more do what he said he was asked to do and to help us have a seat for a poor old country man. However, someone soon came out and the old man was just about to squeeze inside the door where he stood with his hand up to his ear trying to hear what was going on. Just then it happened that a young lady in a front pew turned from the front and saw him in the back. She called the sexton and said, my father told me to hold our pew for him until he came for the sermon, but he said if he did not get here, he was to give it to someone else. Evidently, he's been detained. Will you please go back and bring that old man who has his hand to his ear up front? He's standing just inside the door. In a few moments, petition number one was fully answered. Now in Scotland, some folks always kneel for prayer as the minister leads. Others reverently rise to their feet. The old man was the kneeling kind, and the young woman always stood. As she looked down when they were praying, she could not help observing the worn soles on the shoes of the kneeling worshiper next to her. Her father happened to be a shoemaker. At the close of the service, she delicately approached the subject of the need of a better pair of shoes, asked if she might ask her father to make him some, even though his store was closed for the night, and that they would present him with a pair. Needless to say, her offer was accepted as graciously as it was made. There goes petition number two, still not done. At the store, the lady inquired where he was going to stay for the night, and in all simplicity, he said, I love this, I, I, I dinna ken yet. My father has a room for me, but he has not told me where it is. Puzzled for a moment, she said, Oh, you mean your father God? Well, I believe we have a room for you. We are saving our guest room for the Reverend Dr. Blank, but a telegram came this morning saying he could not come. So now you must come home with me and be our guest. And so the third petition was granted. The next day, the student inquired as to the outcome of the prayer and was astonished to find that God had heard and answered every particular plea. He's never too busy to heed the cries of his needy people. What we all require is more confidence in his love and more earnestness and directness in prayer. Boom. I love that story for lots of reasons, most especially because it's the young theologian that's off the wall, and it's the old fuddy-duddy who has it right. <laughs> all right, now I go from preaching to meddling, and then we're done. So here's the question, brothers and sisters. If you take a magnifying glass and examine your prayer life and ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to look for a second, you've got to ask a hard question. And the question is this. Of those three things, which is the most important for you where you live and move and have your being? That's the question. It has to be about you, but it also has to be about your prayer life. God wants us not simply to pray, but to be better prayers. So here's the question. Is it the fact that you need to start praying? I wasn't born yesterday. You do know that I know that most people in America don't have a prayer life, right? You know that. Do you know how you learn to pray? You pray. So guess what? Here's news flash. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. I guarantee you I'm talking to some people that have never really learned to pray this morning. Here's the really good news. You can start now. It's never too late. Never too late. And the most important thing is to commit and find a place, whatever it is, in your schedule and in your life where you can do it, and just to do it and start at five minutes. And just commit to do that for a week. You'd be amazed at what a difference. Okay, that maybe that's you. But maybe 
maybe you need to hear a little bit about the industriousness part. Because, yeah, you're there every day, but actually, if, if we got to be dropped in and we heard you pray, it wouldn't look like you're working because your heart's not really in it anymore. <laughs> We've all been there, brothers and sisters. It gets tiring, the ordinariness of it. And maybe you need to hear, once again, the importance of sticking with it, that God loves you and that God is calling you to stick with it, and he will be there every day, and he wants you to be there every day. And maybe you just need to hear once again that even though you don't think your heart is in it and that it matters, it does. So stay there and keep on keeping on. Maybe that's you. But what about that last one? It does matter, you know. What are you asking God for? And if your prayer life was examined honestly, could you say that you pray as boldly as the apostles did in Acts 4? It was once said of John Knox, one of the great reformers in the church in Scotland, that he regularly prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. What about that? What about that? Maybe we need to expand our horizons. Maybe we need to pray more diligently and more boldly. Whatever, whatever it is, whichever of the three points applies most to you, let it sink in. Let the Holy Spirit reveal it to you and take it to heart. And then one last thing, a kind of a collective thing. I'm going to take a risk because I'm, I'm the new guy. So I, I can get away with this, you know, because it's, it's Mikey and it's the life commercial. He'll eat anything. No, but this, this does matter to me. There, there's actually, this is an important challenge. I have a final challenge, which is for all of us corporately. And, but I want to say something about it beforehand, which is this. If you're paying attention, there's actually something going on at Holy Cross. Have you noticed? There actually is. And there's something that's going on is this. If you pay attention, you can actually feel that there's a greater expectancy in worship than there was before. If you actually look at people, you know, I don't use notes, I read your faces. You know that, right? No, but you actually look like you're hoping, you look like you're expecting more than when I first got here. That doesn't happen, except that the Holy Spirit does it. And there's reasons for it. One is Chris is back, and Chris is back with a new heart, and I think a new love, and I think a new direction. And we'll probably hear more about that tonight. And no, he didn't ask me to say that. Um, but, but, and that gives us new energy. But there's also something else going on, which is there's a rising level of expectation that the God we're hearing about who can do great things is actually going to do a great thing in our midst. And we need to lean into that, and here's how. And I, I, I'm pledging my part in this. I want everybody here this morning to promise me that they will spend at least a few minutes before they come to worship or while they're in worship, when, if they're here early, praying for God to show up together. In other words, I think we need to capitalize on the move of the Spirit and take it one step further. You all hear what I'm saying? So I need you and you need me to pray that the Holy Spirit will literally really show up. And we will be surprised. We might actually even have our breath taken away by what God can do. So Lord, teach us to pray. It's intimate. It's industrious. It's intrepid. As we are seated, let's just pause and take a moment. Lord, thank you that you modeled your life to be the life we're called to and that you are a person of prayer. 
And thank you for the Lord's Prayer that reminds us of what prayer looks like. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us all individually and collectively to enter more deeply into conversation with you this week. Deepen our prayer lives, Lord. And please, Lord, take us to the future where you want us to go. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.